2: We're just not a priority. We're just not a priority. The amount of people that share needles because they don't have enough money to buy pipes or needles and stuff like that, we don't have that problem here because of them.
3: Hello, Imperfect Paradise listeners. This week, we're bringing you a series from our good friends over at fellow LAist podcast, How to LA. I've been really moved listening to this series because it gets into this very difficult issue, one that we've covered here on this show, which is homelessness here in Los Angeles, and the difficulties and nuances in addressing this major issue. But what I personally enjoyed most in this series, and why I think it'll appeal to you and listeners, is that this series also offers us an inside peek into daily life on Skid Row, which is a place that has its own culture and its own sense of community. I really enjoyed hearing from the people who live there. A note before we get started, we get into some heavy themes in this episode, and so there's some strong language ahead. Without further ado, here's host Brian DeLos Santos and producer Evan Jacoby from How to LA.
4: So uh, syringes, alcohol pads, cotton balls, cookers, tourniquets.
5: From L.A. studios, this is How to LA. I'm your host, Brian De Los Santos. And I'm Evan
6: Jacoby, a producer on the show.
4: One extra will go in that bag. One extra will go in this bag.
6: In August, I went to an encampment under the 405 freeway in Palms with my friend Jesse.
4: A lot of the folks who live here, I've been seeing since I started here four years ago. We have like an extended network of mutual aid folks who all contribute in various ways
5: mutual aid it's an old idea but it's becoming more and more popular in LA basically it means working together to provide essential resources for people in your community no strings attached it's been a huge part of the solution for countless problems providing resources during the AIDS crisis immigration support and during COVID, it became a much more mainstream idea around the world. Some groups using the mutual aid model are official nonprofits. Some are decentralized groups of a few volunteers. In recent years, especially in LA, a lot of mutual aid groups have turned their attention toward on-house communities, offering everything from bottled water to clean needles to backpacks.
6: Yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of talk recently at the city and county level about future plans for tackling the homelessness crisis, and some of those plans sound promising. But living on the street is often a day-to-day battle of life and death.
0: This place will beat you fucking down, dude. The abuse and the neglect on the homeless people, it's evil out here.
6: The promise of future services can't help somebody if they aren't alive in six months, a year, five years, to receive them. So mutual aid groups often act like a band-aid. They provide what's needed to keep people alive until the city can provide more permanent solutions like housing, treatment, and other services.
2: I've been able to call on them when I haven't been able to call on anyone else. Things like that are priceless.
5: I don't think a lot of people would argue against providing life-saving resources to people, but sometimes those services can get stuck behind bureaucratic red tape. So with the growing awareness, visibility, and reliance on mutual aid, we want to take some time to explore some very big questions. First, what do mutual aid groups actually look like in practice? What do they provide for unhoused people? Second, why is mutual aid still necessary in Los Angeles? If it's supposed to be this Band-Aid solution, why is the Band-Aid still on after so many years? And third, I think many Angelinos can relate to this desire to help people in their community. So what kind of things can we do?
6: big and small, to help our unhoused neighbors. Over the next three weeks, we'll attempt to find an answer for each of these questions, starting with understanding what these groups really do.
2: They save lives, and that's a big deal. That's really hard to say in like homeless communities.
7: Here in the city of Los Angeles alone, we have almost 30,000 people experiencing unsheltered homelessness. Even within my district, there is incredible difference between who is experiencing homelessness, how they came to be on the streets, government services.
8: Our goal is actually not to exist in the future by pushing for policy change so that we don't need to exist.
6: Part one, the alternative is death.
4: ones that I have in my car and the ones that Dindy has, we probably have close to like, I want to say 9 or 10K. Oh. Kind of like stocked up now. Because yeah. Dindy said she's been going to other spots too, so. Do you mind saying 10K what? Uh, syringes. Giving out harm reduction supplies, it's I think become kind of a priority for most of the mutual aid groups.
6: This is my friend Jesse Gulcher. He introduced me to the idea of harm reduction a few years ago. More on that in just a minute. He's a postdoc researcher at University of California, San Diego, where he studies public health. Honestly, he's one of the most informed people I've ever met in this field, so I often rely on him to introduce me to people or teach me about things I'm unaware of. He also spends a lot of time volunteering in the communities where he does his research.
4: We'll make the kits as big as we can, but some things get reduced, so... Once we start running low on supplies, we definitely do start
6: rationing. In order to answer our main question for this episode, what do mutual aid groups actually do for unhoused communities, we decided to spend a few days with volunteers across Los Angeles.
4: So I can walk you through everything. Yeah, tell me what goes in.
6: Packing up supplies, handing out food and water, basically whatever the volunteers were doing, so we could better understand that experience. We're featuring two mutual aid groups in this episode, and the second half will go to Skid Row with a group of mostly college students. This one's but first, Jesse. Only two left. And a group he volunteers with on Mondays at an encampment in Palms.
8: I don't really know a lot of people doing needles for harm reduction. In terms of like the mutual aid groups that we're in contact with, a lot of it's glassware. My name is Sebastian, and we're here at Venison Globe.
2: Hi, my name is Dindi, and we're here with PUMA, which is uh, Palms and House Mutual Aid.
4: Dindi founded this org called PUMA. It's not a registered nonprofit. We have no authorization to do any of this. Not that I think we need it, but we don't have it. None of it's official. We just show up at the same time every week. And at this point, we're there because people generally expect us to be.
6: Jesse, Dindy, and the folks here with Puma are getting ready for their Monday afternoon distribution.
2: On Mondays, we try and do harm reduction primarily, but then now, like Pat and Eve bring the burritos and we have water and other things too. We'll get requests for pepper spray, sewing kits, on top of like food and the other hygiene items we bring.
6: So, harm reduction. It's kind of like this philosophy of lowering the risks associated with substance use. The idea that someone can't seek treatment, can't change their situation if they die from something like hepatitis. Despite some opposition and controversy, it's been around for decades, and research does show that it saves lives in the long run. Jesse, how can I be helpful? You can help me assemble if you want. So we
4: give everything out in these brown paper bags. Three packs of ten, so thirty syringes. These little sterile water packets that come in in sets of five. A big handful of alcohol prep pads. These are called cookers. They're these little metal kind of dishes. Uh, And we usually put, you know, three or four of these per bag cotton balls, uh, tourniquets, and twisty ties.
6: All the supplies in these brown paper bags have a common goal. Limit overall harm. Clean needles and alcohol swabs help people who inject drugs avoid disease. Sterile water and cotton balls help avoid blood clots. You
4: put the, the syringe through the cotton and it acts as a filter. Do you teach
6: them that process, or do they just kind of...
4: Anybody that we're giving supplies out to knows how to use. It's not, I'm not going to teach someone how to inject drugs, you know.
6: Jesse says their overall goal is to provide the short-term solution of keeping people alive so that hopefully down the road, they're able to receive a more permanent solution in the form of housing. As we were putting together the last of the harm reduction kits, a few people started gathering around Jesse's car. Do you need something? Are uh, you guys having syringes by any chance? Hey, Jesse. Yeah, what's going
4: on? Our... You guys handing out some syringes by any chance? Sure. What do you oh, need? 20 or thirty gauge. Uh, thirty shorts, right? Yeah. So five sixteenths. There's thirty in the bag, plus awesome. all the accessories. Do you need glassware too? Like a boogie hammer pipe. I don't know. Okay. No. Those are like do you need Narcan? Yeah, no, I do not. Okay. No, Thanks thank very much. much. Have a good you day. Know. A typical day. You know, we get here at around 4. We usually make harm reduction kits, unless we already have some made. Uh, Dindi keeps the glassware in storage, bubble pipes and straight pipes. Pat brings the burritos, as you saw. She makes about a 100 of them each week. Sebastian brings the carts. We load the carts up with as much as we can, carry the rest of the bags, and then we head out.
6: We turned to the corner and started out under the overpass. I want to say there were about 50 or 60 tents between both sides of the street.
4: There's all these little kind of like walled off areas where people will set up tarps around the tents to form a little like complex area. So we just kind of weave our way in and out. We chat with people.
6: While we were making our way through the encampment, I asked some of the residents there about the different kinds of support they get from mutual aid groups like PUMA And from the government
2: They call me no-no I mean, that's a funny question Because the government Whatever they do for us Is their job It's not personal Some of them, you can tell it's their calling It's their mission and they love what they do And others are literally doing it To clock out Like any other job
6: so what, what is the Puma,
2: like, how is that different for you? Well, the, the Puma team, like, I mean, they, they go above and beyond. Like, those are people that I've been able to call on them when I haven't been able to call on anyone else.
6: Nono told me that the morning we met, there'd been a city sweep at the encampment. This kind of thing happens all over the city, where everyone's tents and belongings are cleared out, the sidewalk is hosed down... It could be a huge loss for people, especially if it's a surprise. The city is supposed to post signs beforehand warning people about it, but Nono says this morning she didn't know.
2: And at like 6.30 something in the morning, I was like, hey Sebastian, sorry to text you so early, but it's clean up and I don't want to lose my tent again. He immediately texted me back and he reached out to the rest of the Puma team to see who could help me he came I mean to stop what you're doing go out of your way things like that are priceless if we ever have an overdose we always have Narcan because of them and they feed us not to mention you could tell the lady makes the burritos with love because they're delicious every time and they're different every time different meats different sauces and sometimes she makes brownies. Like, yes, we're appreciative of the harm reduction stuff, but we get excited about the freaking burritos.
6: Jesse and the other volunteers crossed the street to the other side of Venice, and we started making our way through the rest of the encampment. Ready to go? There are more tents on this side today because today's sweep only affected the north side, the part of the street that's officially in city of Los Angeles. But most of the people who live on this side of the street had already come up to us to get what they needed. That meant we were almost done with distribution.
9: Hey, homie. Cool. I'm going to say thank you for the food, and thank you for everything that you guys do for us.
6: Most people at the encampment accepted a glass pipe. About half accepted a bag of needles or a box of Narcan. The burritos were a big hit, Everyone took at least one. Everyone also took as many water bottles as we could give them.
4: Oftentimes we'll bring specific things for people that ask for specific things. So last week you weren't here, but we had a bunch of folks asking for tents. And so we made a list of who needs tents. And then we came back with tents for folks. If people ask for batteries, the next week we'll have a bunch of batteries with us. You know, we've gotten backpacks for people. We've gotten clothing for people. We've helped people get...
0: Ideas. Jesse's coming out here is coming straight from the heart, you know what I'm saying? It's genuine, you know? Can't put a price on that.
6: This is someone we're going to call Raylan. She asks that we use a pseudonym. Raylan was sitting outside of her tent, just underneath the on-ramp to the freeway. As you can hear, it was very loud. She's sitting in a folding beach chair with a friend who lives in a different encampment. They were talking about how difficult it's been for them to find housing.
0: This is this is my friend Franklin. He's been out for 15 years. I've been out here for 10. I've been here about housing people for 10 years.
6: Raylan says one of the big reasons she relies on Puma so much is actually because of those cleanups that happen at the encampments. She says it can be hard to hold on to things like a tent, clothes. Pots and pans.
0: You know how much stuff over there that them people lose when they do that? Mm-hmm. And they have to come up on all that stuff all over again, dude. You can't even fucking cook because you get shit and it gets taken right away from you. You figure they don't want homeless people to succeed out here. I come from a good home and good people. I'm not a piece of shit. I did do drugs my whole life. This place will beat you fucking down, dude. The abuse and the neglect on the homeless people, it's evil out here.
6: Unhoused communities are not a monolith. Even just in this one encampment, one side of the street is in Culver City, the other is City of LA. That means differences in access to portable toilets, different schedules and frequencies of street sweeps. Some people were living in tents, others in RVs. The point is, unhoused life can look very different throughout Los Angeles.
5: After the break, Evan and I go out with a different mutual aid group, operating in Skid Row.
1: The L.A.S. Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there.
5: Welcome back to a special episode of Imperfect Paradise featuring How to L.A.'s series on mutual aid. I'm Brian Dos Santos, the host of How to LA. And I'm Evan Jacoby, a producer on the show.
10: Okay, so you're gonna be on section D
7: with Rosa and Jerry.
5: Evan and I are in a parking lot near USC to meet up with Water Drop LA. It's Sunday, about 11 in the morning, and there's a few dozen people grabbing Costco-sized cases of water moving them from a U-Haul truck to the center of the parking lot. What
8: was your name? First timer, David Albrecht. Welcome, we love
10: people who are here for the first time. Thank you so much for volunteering your morning with us.
5: People are checking in and getting ready to distribute water and snacks.
10: My name is Danielle Hazimi. I've been a water drop volunteer for about a year now, and today I am the designated check-in and map person.
5: Like we've said, mutual aid throughout the city can look very different. Compared to Puma, there's a lot of organization going on here. That's in part because Skid Row is a lot bigger. It spans four square miles with thousands of unhoused people living there. There's various mutual aid groups of different sizes providing all sorts of resources, from harm reduction to food to socks. The water drop folk try to hit the entire neighborhood.
10: We basically break down the neighborhood into different sections, which I have a map over here to show you. We'll assign one car to each section, and then we'll have two to three folks with them in the car. Each person or each ten, if no one is home, um, we'll get two gallons of water. That's kind of our standard to ensure fairness among everyone. And then we also hand out snacks and um, liquid IV, things like that.
5: After Evan and I check in, we join the rotation in front of the U-Haul. File up, grab a case of water, Move it to the pile in the center of the parking lot and repeat. They usually have eight pallets of water in the U-Haul, but since it's the first day of a late autumn heat wave, they've got one extra. That translates to just under twenty-five hundred gallons of bottled water. While we wait for our turn, we asked some volunteers, "What brought you out here today?"
6: When they pointed out that this weekend was suddenly this heat wave making this all the more critical. I said, "Today is the day to jump in, so stop wasting time, get out there and do it. My name is David Albrecht. I am here at Waterdrop LA for the first time. I've seen them on Instagram for a while, and I'm really impressed to see so many people. I guess I've been a little slow to get caught up. Pardon me, I have to lift. It's like in the kindest way, it's like watching ants. Yeah. <laughs>
11: We've been doing this for three years, so over 170 weeks straight, which is why it does tend to work pretty pretty easily now.
5: This is Arya Catano, one of the co-founders of Water Drop LA. She says they grew out of another group that provided food, when one day they realized they didn't have water to give out with it.
11: I started calling the missions and other organizations that are operating in Skid Row to see if they had any plan for providing water, especially during COVID, and they didn't. We realized that it was a huge gap in services. A lot of people didn't realize that unsheltered people in LA don't have access to water. And we realized that it was something that we could raise energy around to actually you know, get a temporary solution and maybe a long-term solution and to fix.
5: Water access in L.A.'s unhoused communities is a big problem. A study published this year in the International Journal for Equity and Health found that about 30% of Skid Row residents had limited daytime access to drinking water, and that number jumps to nearly 70% at night.
11: We've seen this attitude at times of, you know, they already have a couple options for water, so why add more? part of why we continue to exist is because we don't want to accept that as an answer. Thank you. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces and a lot of new ones as well. So By
5: now, all the water is loaded up and Arya is addressing the crowd.
11: One thing to keep in mind when doing this is to just stay very present of your body in the space. Uh, you are entering other people's homes. The line between private and public is a lot more fuzzy in places like Skid Row where people are unsheltered. And so just try to be very cognizant of how you're entering the space. You know, try not to step on people's tarps, on their property. Don't poke your head into someone's tent to say hi, even if it's
5: well- After a group Narcan training, Evan and I meet up with our assigned team leader, Sade, and head out to the northeast corner of Skid Row.
10: Hi, I'm Sade Kamen. I'm actually a macro social worker. So like, I do like org stuff. But in terms of research, I've focused on like water delivery and like ethics in urban poverty.
6: Sade is here as a volunteer today, but her work work and her volunteer work have a lot of overlap. She's taking us on our typical loop through the area, starting down Fifth Street, where she'll introduce us to some of the people she's worked with over the years. Almost immediately, we pass an open fire hydrant.
10: People will crack them and then they'll drink this water that comes out and sprays out. It is technically potable water, so they like can drink it, um, but we don't recommend
6: it. But it's pretty common to see a fire hydrant like that.
10: Yeah, yeah all the time. Good morning.
6: A little further down the block. We come up to a small grouping of tents.
12: What happened to your cat? No, he brought me down to the beach. Sade
6: seems name. to know everyone here by name, and everyone seems excited to see her.
13: The name of the song?
6: <laughs> I think Skid Row gets a reputation for being completely chaotic and disorderly, but watching Sade and the people here interact, it was like watching any other community. A couple people playing chess outside their tent. People giving each other bus directions. One guy asked if I could interview his pet birds. Sky Blue,
14: Miss Biggie, Blue Nile, Little One. How you guys are doing? You guys enjoying the day? Oh, yeah. Show wings of wings, I say. You guys are going to be the world's most famous birds.
5: While Shade is looking for one of her regulars, a man named Dwight... One of the water drop cars pulls up. You. You to the
12: store, so you and one well, yeah, and I got two dogs too. Okay, and also there's,
13: uh, there's two, two guys who are here. Like They're
12: pretty.
5: giving two gallons of bottled water to each person. I love it.
12: It don't last though, so I hit the hydrant. You know, and that supplied me where I need. Mm-hmm.
10: Where do you get most of your water?
12: From the hydrant. That's not, I know that's not too cool, you know, bring the pressure down. If it be a fire, you don't have enough pressure to put the fire out. But that's just one of the things we uh, had to sacrifice <laughs> to live, survive. My name is Dwight Joseph Banks. I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana. Came this way by the way of Katrina. I was a plumber, had my own business. And it folded up on me because I uh, had the flood insurance. I tell people when they come here, I say, look, don't get comfortable with this. Cause you get comfortable with this, you get stuck out here. You know,
5: you'll be stuck like in Twilight Zone. Dwight says in the seven years he's been here, the city has slowly started to offer more services.
12: I guess the city's doing the best they can, you know, with the funds they have. There's a fresh stop right down there. 24 hours, you could use the bathroom or take a shower. And they have other services there. You get vouchers. I D, that's where I'm going now.
5: We will be talking more about the services the city provides in episode two, but for now, we wanted to know if it was important to Dwight that it was the volunteers, the mutual aid folks, who were stepping up to fill in the gaps.
12: Yes it is, very important to me, you know. I would like to participate myself, you know. It seems like I get myself together. I like to put more of my time into volunteering. Mm-hmm. Cause I ain't got much time left on here, I'm 63 years old.
6: In <laughs> another 40 years.
12: Hey, I like you. <laughs>
6: uh, my dad's 63, so... Bless his heart. We say bye to Dwight and continue with Shade on our loop. My name is Hawk. I live in Skid Row. I
14: work in Skid Row. I help people in Skid Row.
10: So, Hawk's a U.S. veteran has been unhoused for like 20-something years.
14: Usually, when you come into a community, if you want to know what's going on in that community, you can stop at a barbershop. They'll tell you everything.
6: Hawk operates his one-man barbershop right here, outside of his tent.
14: When they look good, I look good. And that's why water is so important to me, Is I have to keep everything clean. And every foundation that comes down here and contribute is a blessing.
6: But Hawk says as much as he appreciates it, it isn't enough. He showed us how he supplements his supply from a nearby fire hydrant.
14: So, this is my key right here, old utility key, that usually come off a utility truck. You take and turn it on, and let you bucket up. i get you a little wet. And as best I use something clear I can see in. You can see there's just particles and stuff in there. And you take the key out, because you walk away from here and they'll come right by and steal it. It's actually um, drinkable, but I very rarely do If I do, I boil it. If I run out of water, this is it. I'm not going thirsty. Them bringing out water, it assists us in a way that you just can't explain. You need water for everything. Guys come through with a little bit of everything here. We get to see them eye to eye, look at them, talk to them. Some of them go in their own pockets. Whether we're important to other people or not, those people come down here on their own.
5: After we say goodbye to Hawk, we catch up with the rest of the Water Drop volunteers. Most of them are finished distributing their share of water and snacks. We ask some of them why is mutual aid important to you?
8: Just last year, unhoused folks were five of twelve heat-related deaths in LA. Unless everyone's going to get housed in the next two weeks, you need to have the resources for people. My name is Jordi Uh I'm a volunteer with Water Drop LA. I've been volunteering for two and change years. One of the things that I really like about Waterdrop is unlike a lot of other organizations that provide services, our goal is actually not to exist in the future by pushing for policy change so that we don't need to exist. The ideal would be folks can get what they need without us being here, but I mean, as long as we've got funding, volunteers, and water, we'll be there till then.
5: We also saw David again, the first timer we met back in the parking lot.
6: I've lived in LA for 40 years now, and when I got here, Skid Row is here, and Skid Row is still here. It doesn't matter who the mayor is, who the city council is, it comes down to people like this group of 30, 40 people going out and actually talking to people. You know, let me get this for her dog, let me get that for the person who lives up there. I mean, people were genuinely looking out for each other, so it was a really good day. I'll definitely be back.
5: And this is Arya again, Water Drop LA's co-founder.
11: I think the reason why we continue to do this is because we just We don't want to accept the current status quo. We want more for our communities. We know so many people in Skid Row so intimately because we've known them for three years and we care about them. And a lot of our volunteers here have been coming back week after week and have started to develop relationships as well. And so I think for us, a lot of it is personal. It's like you wouldn't want your friend to be outside in the cold, not drinking water, um, or in the hot, not drinking water, etc.
5: So that's the answer we came up with for our first question. Mutual aid groups are made up of volunteers trying to provide whatever is needed most. They try to cover gaps in available resources within unhoused communities. Some of them are big, some are small, some focus on food and water, some focus on hygiene and harm reduction. But one of the things that stood out for me was when the water drop people said their ultimate goal is to not need to exist.
14: They try to find a band-aid for the symptoms that the people have.
5: After a break...
14: Her association can only do so much, and other associations like hers can only do so much. But the people that can really do it
5: don't. We move on to the next question in our series.
7: Each district operates in many ways as its own fiefdom. We can get
10: meetings with like all the other offices and not Kevin DeLeon, which I think is a big holdup.
5: Why is mutual aid still necessary in Los Angeles? If it's supposed to be a band aid solution, when can we expect to take this band aid off?
7: Well, it is, you know, I think it's a real indictment of the city.
3: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however, you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. grow with shopify sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash paradise all lowercase go to shopify.com slash paradise now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash paradise
5: Welcome back to a special episode of Imperfect Paradise, featuring How to LA's series on Mutual Aid. I'm Brian De Los Santos.
6: And I'm Evan Jacoby, a producer on the show.
5: To recap, we've got three big questions for this series. First, what does Mutual Aid look like in unhoused communities?
4: So we give everything out in these brown paper bags, syringes, alcohol pads, cotton balls.
5: Second. Why is mutual aid still necessary in Los Angeles if it's supposed to be this band-aid solution?
4: We've been calling the city out repeatedly for this kind of failure of programming, even when they are providing necessary services.
5: And third, what kind of things can we all do, big and small, to help our unhoused
6: neighbors? We all know the long-term solution to the homelessness crisis is affordable housing, but in the meantime, tens of thousands of people are living unsheltered across Los Angeles. We know the city is doing some things. Same for the county, same for LASA, the Homeless Services Authority, and other agencies. But it's clear, unhoused people have some very basic, immediate needs that are not being met by government services.
5: So let's repeat our main question for part two. Why is the mutual aid band-aid still on? AKA, where are these service gaps coming from for unhoused communities across Los Angeles? You're gonna hear from a lot of people in this next part. People experiencing homelessness.
14: They give you a little bit of something to start off with and then next thing you know, when it's gone, in a couple of days, what do you do?
5: Elected officials.
7: The city has found it very, very challenging to provide things like showers, porta potties, never mind food
11: or water.
5: And we'll hear from volunteers again, too.
11: It's good that private citizens are supporting each other, but that shouldn't be a stilt that the government relies on.
5: Part two The Forever Band Aid. If mutual aid groups are going to become less necessary, then the services they provide need to come from somewhere else. But before we get too deep into the different types of government services out there, we need to unpack a few things about the government itself. LA is a unique place. We have a lot of different government agencies, each with different budgets. So if you want to point a finger at your local government official, you have a lot of options to choose from.
15: Oh yeah, it's a lot. Unlike New York City, where it's all one big entity under a giant city government, L.A. is really a total mishmash. You've got the county, the city, Lhasa, a lot of different entities.
5: This is Nick Gerda. He's the unhoused communities reporter at LAist. And he's covered a lot of the issues we're talking about today, We've relied on him a lot during our reporting to unpack some of the complexity surrounding these issues.
15: Yeah, it's really reasonable to be confused by this. And there's a lot of overlap in responsibility. And the idea behind that about a century ago was to decentralize power. But the flip side is that you have all these different government entities and it can get really confusing. And in the past, what we've seen is a lot of finger pointing.
6: So we followed two mutual aid groups while they were volunteering in different parts of L.A., One of them gives out water in Skid Row. The other provides harm reduction supplies in Palms. We spell this out in episode one, but things like access to water or overdose prevention, these are life or death services, right? Like, it's easy for us to sit here and say, okay, well, this stuff is life or death. The government should be doing it. But then the question becomes which government agency is in charge of which service?"
15: You know, it's funny, Like traditionally the way these government programs work is it's sort of top-down. They look at funding streams, what money's coming their way, and then divvy it up, but not really looking from the ground level at what people's needs are and what are all the ways that they can be helped. What you're describing is a way of looking at what the community needs first and then saying, okay, we need funding for X, Y, and Z. In reality, like I said, it's a lot more top-down. So you can get this issue where you have a solution looking for a problem instead of problems looking for a solution, and that can create a lot of gaps. What you end up with is a bunch of different agencies doing different pieces of this, but not really one entity taking responsibility for an entire suite of services. Part of it gets into the philosophy of what is the role of government. Um, does government have responsibility and taxpayers have responsibility to provide life-saving support for um, people living on the streets? I haven't seen that debate play out, you know, how much the city should be stepping in to help people. In general, the city has taken on temporary housing as one of its main focuses. The county, broadly speaking, is responsible for mental health services and drug treatment. But there's a lot of restrictions tied to that. Uh, For example, drug treatment gets cut off after 90 days for people. And what we're seeing now is the city step in under Mayor Bass to try to provide services beyond those 90 days. But a lot of the city's programs take a while to get off the ground because of bureaucracy and planning that needs to go into it.
5: Okay, so then what about water? Is water covered under some department's budget?
15: I'm not aware of any government entities that are required to make sure that unhoused people have access to water. Um, My understanding is it's optional. There's examples of the county providing funding for some showers. Uh, The city has these refresh spots. They operate in Skid Row where they hand out water bottles to folks. But there's really no one government entity that's responsible for making sure people have access to water on the streets. A lot of people are trying to find solutions Elected officials and their staff But they're finding a lot of difficulty in navigating these systems All the bureaucracy that's involved Restrictions on funding And um, a lack of kind of a coordinated, centralized database um, To know where resources are available And in places like Skid Row You see that kind of frustration play out in real time
5: That's actually something we heard a lot during our trip to Skid Row with Waterdrop LA. After a break, Evan and I are gonna continue our story from that trip. And we hear from some of the unhoused people we met about their experiences with the services there. And we talk to city leaders about the services they offer.
13: Well, the fact of the matter is this crisis took decades to develop. I'm happy with what we've been able to do, but it is woefully inadequate.
5: Haruala is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out.
1: This feels like we're out in the mountains.
5: And we're taking some culture. In Leimert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the show.
14: If you're going to help somebody, find out what the problem is. Find out. If there's a medical problem, they try to get them from medical help. If there's a drug problem, get them from drug help, or open up a damn place where they can.
6: This is Hawk, one of the people we met in episode one. He lives in Skid Row, where he operates a one-man barbershop outside of his tent. He relies on water from the mutual aid group Water Drop LA, and supplements that supply with a nearby fire hydrant.
14: It's not Miss Bass's job alone but because she's a mayor, she can put emphasis on the people who have something to show for what they've done. Sade's one of those people.
6: Sade, Kamen, is a volunteer with Water Drop, and she's known Hawk for years. She pointed to a building across the street from Hawk's tent.
10: This is the refresh spot. This is where people get a lot of water that's not from us, so they have showers and bathrooms and a water box. That's probably like one of the best resources that the city has like installed. They do laundry. We can probably walk through. Hi are you? Um, I got you from LA.
6: Shade brought us around the street to that facility, but we weren't able to speak on the record with any of the workers there. So we asked Hawk about his experiences with Refresh.
14: It's a great asset to the homeless, but not all homeless people use that facility. Some of these people are like me, I don't do people, groups of people well. That mental thing can hold them back from many benefits, but they need assistance badly. I'm fortunate enough and blessed enough to have a fire hydrant, because that's how I survive.
10: I would think like the refresh spot is like one of the best interventions in the city. I will say that like in Skid Row, you have a lot of people who aren't stable enough to regularly access resources. We reach a lot of people who can't go into Refresh or who like won't walk all the way or have avoidance issues.
6: Refresh is not the only immediate term service from the city here in Skid Row. There's also the cooling and warming stations meant to keep people safe during extreme weather. These stations are actually a really good example of the mutual aid groups pushing the needle on what resources are provided by the city. They opened after a lot of pressure from these groups and other activists. But there has been a lot of criticism on the number of stations built and when they actually became available. For example, Nick's reporting on LAist highlights some significant delays, rolling them out last summer. Sade told us the same thing too.
10: At the start of the heat waves, there was nothing out there until people were like getting really mad and asking where the resources were. You know, there's a lot of money that, like, should be going into Skid Row that is not seen on the ground.
5: I want to take a minute to talk about Skid Row. This four-square-mile neighborhood just southeast of downtown has a long history, going back to the 1800s. In the 1970s, city officials established an unofficial containment zone for homelessness, where they would allow shelters and other services. These days... Skid Row is viewed as a national epicenter of the homelessness crisis. And black and brown people are disproportionately represented in the neighborhood, accounting for about 80% of the total population. There's a lot of people who have been living in the streets for a long time without adequate services. People told us they can get used to feeling forgotten out here. But they're people, you know? Those people are people too. We asked Dwight, Another one of the Skid Row residents we met in episode one, what he would want to tell his city representatives about his life.
12: Well, it's really not about me. It's not about me. It's about the city and how they have people outside. That's not normal, you know. They got to get us off the street. They got to get us off the street. And I think they're doing a good job, you know, in new areas. And I'd like to tell them thank you. Thank you. Because if it don't work, they put in a try. You see? That's a piece of failure, but a try.
5: When we asked Sade about this, she was a bit more critical.
10: Yeah, I mean, I think Dwight was, like, very nice. I think that that's, like, not the general relationship. I think people feel very angry and resentful. He's a senior citizen. Like, he should be inside. There should be housing. Like, he's been here for seven years. It's kind of crazy that there's
13: not.
5: Okay, so back to the big question we're asking today. Why aren't these services sufficient for unhoused people? And why is it that the volunteers are the ones who are filling the gaps?
6: Council member, can you hear me? Hey Evan, I can can you hear me?
5: Evan and I brought this question to some government officials. Council member Kevin DeLeon, whose district includes Skid Row. Council member Nithya Rahman, who got her start in mutual aid work before running for office and
6: L.A. Mayor Karen Bass,
5: who ran on a promise to house 17,000 people.
6: Up first, Councilmember De Leon.
16: My name is Kevin De Leon. I'm the council member for the cd CD14- 14 council district in the city of Los Angeles.
6: Just to give you kind of a quick rundown of what we're looking for, this series, it's on mutual aid, what's the overlap between the services you guys provide? We told the council member about our time with the folks at Waterdrop LA and asked how we felt about these kinds of volunteer services. I will say
16: that any organization or any entity or any group of individuals who are willing to go down to Skid Row or anywhere else, you know, in the city of Los Angeles or elsewhere and provide bottles of water is something that I've always welcomed. I would say don't stop, you know, keep doing it until we get every person off the streets.
6: What I kind of want to understand is like, so these cooling centers, it's a great step towards a broader solution. What was kind of the reasoning for why it took so long for those to show up like for instance this summer yeah it was sort of after some of the heat waves obviously policy moves slow but i'm just wondering why did it take so long to get to this solution
16: yeah i'm I'm not going to get into the business of you know criticizing my predecessor or you know perhaps other elected officials or Uh, the bureaucracies, if you will, that exist at every level of government. Uh, One thing I just know is that as soon as we took over CD14, we made a determination uh, almost immediately that we have to open up numerous cooling centers.
5: But as we mentioned earlier, while the cooling centers are a great addition for a lot of Skid Row residents, Nick's reporting on Elias showed that they rolled out after the summer heat
6: waves. But despite that delay, they do highlight an example of the city working together with nonprofit groups and volunteers to offer services. So we asked the council member about those kinds of partnerships.
16: You know, it's it's been a mixed bag. We've had a really good collaborative, cooperative working relationship with some organizations where the flow of information is, is quite easy. And we're working towards a mutual goal, which is to get folks off the streets sooner rather than later. At the same time, you know, we've had, you know, experiences that have not been uh, positive or pleasant, to say the least, where we'll have some organizations actually physically go out there and persuade our unhoused neighbors not to take any type of housing.
6: Is that temporary housing?
16: Uh, Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, free housing, uh, a room in a hotel, uh, a a tiny home. Mm -hmm. I I find that to be very bizarre and a huge, huge detriment. And it's had an effect where many politicians, you know, become paralyzed and no longer will intervene to move a homeless encampment and get folks off the street and put a roof over their head for fear of severe criticism uh, or being canceled, you know, through social media platforms To me, it's akin to, you know, doctors performing surgery and some folks just bust through the surgery room and start taking away the instruments from the doctor and and believes that you should heal the individual in a very different way. And you have a patient that's on the surgery table who needs intervention sooner rather than later or he or she may die or seriously become even much more sick.
6: I just want to kind of focus on some of these urgent needs for a sec of like, you have people that might be overdosing who don't have access to Narcan. You have people who are maybe getting infectious disease because they don't have access to clean needles. You have other people who might be dying of thirst, you know, in a horrible worst case scenario or just unable to wash a wound, right? In like the less worst case scenario. And they're getting some help and they're not getting enough. And I think that the big question everyone has is like, you're in charge, why oh uh, why, what specifically because that's a huge one Why is that urgent need not being met at a hundred percent?
16: Why does if if I can maybe perhaps rephrase your question, why does the rhetoric of urgency, whether it be through a media? platforms or press releases don't match the action well uh, or the urgency that you're
6: describing with the patient on the table i think it's like it's like the if the person could potentially die tomorrow um why is there you know one refresh spot instead of 12 or why is there homeless healthcare for harm reduction, but not also you handing people clean needles. Yeah,
16: no, I know what you're saying. And I think that we've had, you know, historically we've had a a broken system, Uh, a system that is incoherent, a system that has been siloed, the right hand doesn't speak to the left hand and and vice versa. Uh, I've been very public for the last three years of my deep frustration with Los Angeles County, for example, Department of Mental Health, to help folks who are suffering from clinical depression to bipolar to schizophrenia. Because when you have someone who is screaming and yelling at the top of his or her lungs, uh, running down the street naked, with feces caked onto his or her skin, well, we know that's not normal. But what we've done in L.A. is we've normalized it. But it is abnormal. It is Unique and it should set us off with a sense of urgency. And that's one of my biggest frustrations because it's especially acute in Skid Row.
6: When we spoke to the LA County Department of Mental Health, they did agree that mental health services in the county, including within the city of LA, fall under their jurisdiction.
5: Councilmember DeLeon says that his office recently received $47 million from the California Transportation Commission, which they're planning to use to plant 500 trees and provide street furniture and street lighting within Skid Row. We'll return to some of Councilmember DeLeon's other points on housing later in the series. But for now, Evan and I brought our question about mutual aid groups filling in these service gaps to Councilmember Nithya Rahman. We'll be diving into that in just a minute. But first, a quick break.
3: All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis, There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We
8: don't want to cut equal with everybody else.
3: Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.
5: Welcome back to a special episode of Imperfect Paradise. Featuring How to Relay series on mutual aid. Hey Councilmember Nithya, how are you?
7: I'm good, how are you? I'm alright, it's
5: Monday. Council Member Nithya, Nithya Raman represents Council District 4, which is a very wide district, including parts of Hollywood, Silver Lake, Sherman Oaks, Koreatown, and Van Nuys. And like we mentioned earlier, Councilmember Rahman has a background in mutual aid and volunteering. She co-founded the nonprofit Sila Neighborhood Homeless Coalition. I think one of the themes that we were seeing through our reporting, a lot of volunteers that provide these type of services, they're often saying they wish the government was more involved in the process of giving out Mm. a certain type of aid. You know, can you talk about the responsibility of the government in providing some of these kinds of life-saving services?
7: I think that the government's role providing services for people who are experiencing homelessness directly on the street has been limited by our bureaucratic capacity, and the city has found it very, very challenging to provide things like hygiene services, showers, porta-potties, never mind food or water. And I, I do think that's a problem. I think it's a real indictment of the city. Hygiene services are really something that the city has tried to do, but has found it either prohibitively expensive or just has not provided at the scale that it needs to be provided on the streets right now. We need a citywide response so that we can provide some of these interim services, even as we're working on housing, even as we're working on shelter, to people so that they're not suffering when they are on the streets.
5: Learning from your experiences working with the city for a few years now, you're trying to increase access to services outside of housing as well. What have been some of the biggest challenges and where is the pushback coming from?
7: When I was elected, there were a lot of large encampments on my district's streets. We did, when I first got here, initially focus on trying to provide greater hygiene services to them when the city does this work, it can be extraordinarily expensive. What I learned from that experience was that I have limited staff. We had to choose between providing those services and organizing those efforts and trying to find money to pay for them and actually looking for housing for people where they could access those services You know, in the context of a motel or a hotel room or a shelter site of some kind we're always making tough decisions in the office. Where are we gonna dedicate our staff time to putting resources together? And where are we gonna allocate the very limited dollars that we're getting to address these issues for the district?
5: She also says some challenges she's faced came from inside city council.
7: So one of the challenges that we had when we were first doing programming around picking up trash regularly at encampments I was a little bit surprised by this, actually, from my fellow council members. Some of them felt like putting into place a program like that was conceding that we were allowing homelessness to continue on LA streets. They felt like it was a defeatist posture. I didn't quite expect that. It took a long time for us to be able to move that piece of legislation through the committee process and through the full council, because there was that real pushback.
5: We also reached out to the mayor's office, hoping to interview the newly appointed Chief of Housing and Homelessness. But Mayor Karen Bass saw our email and got in touch with us directly. So we asked her about how her office approaches these kinds of immediate term needs. While you and your administration and other people are working to get people inside, people get housed, what do you think is the city's role? So
13: addressing people's immediate needs to short term and have to address short term, but we have to have a short term and a long term strategy. So there's room and need for everybody to be doing their part. The mutual aid groups that go out and meet basic needs, I think that that's a wonderful thing. Now, what council offices do, I I cannot respond to, but uh, my focus has been to help people get off the street and into housing. However, though, housing without services, without food, without all of the things that people need is insufficient. And if I have learned anything this year, is how the uh, ability to provide services of every type is woefully inadequate. People need water. They need the ability to have basic hygiene. They need food. They need all of that.
5: We are going to take a much deeper dive into housing in the mayor's Inside Safe program in the next episode. But for now, I wanted to know how we ended up with a situation where the mayor herself is describing service access as woefully inadequate. Why did it end up this way?
13: Let me just say that I do not have a magic wand, and it is not going to happen overnight. I talk to people all the time who say, you've been in office for 12 months. Why are there still homeless people? Well, the fact of the matter is this crisis took decades to develop. There are 46,000 people in the city of Los Angeles on the street. I could have spent the first few months or the first year of my administration developing the world's best program, meeting with everybody under the sun and getting everybody's feedback and building a program, but I thought that was inappropriate considering people die on these streets every single day. I'm happy with what we've been able to do this year, especially because we have been building the plane and flying too, but the consequence of doing that is that I'm learning a lot of things. Mistakes are made along the way. We're learning about gaps and things that are woefully inadequate, like services, but I'm gonna continue building the plane and flying it at the same time.
5: I wanna pause and sit with this answer for a minute. I think, especially as journalists, There's a tendency to be more critical of elected officials and ask, why isn't there a faster, better, more equitable solution? But the mayor is saying that if she spent time trying to build that perfect solution, more people might have died in the short term. I don't think this excuses criticisms of the city's efforts to house people, but I do think it's a part of the answer to our overall question for this episode. The mutual aid band-aid is still necessary. Because the city's strategy has been to push forward a plan, even if it's not a complete or perfect plan. We went back to Nick Gerda again. He's a Unhouse unhoused communities reporter. Nick, what we've been talking about all this time, how do we take that mutual aid band-aid off?
15: Well, basically the band-aid becomes less necessary when you don't have these service gaps to cover, right? The scale of the homelessness crisis has just exploded over the last 20, 30 years. A lot more people know someone, an extended family member, a friend, or a friend of a friend who's experienced homelessness. When you peel back the onion, you end up finding failures of systems to keep people housed, keep people on their feet, provide opportunities to deal with their addictions or mental health issues. And you keep going and you find more and more gaps and issues and problems.
6: What we wanted to do was just try to answer this question of why are the volunteers responsible for these very basic things like water and overdose protection? And it sounds like we are kind of getting closer to an answer. But this is one of those stories where it's like the more stones you overturn, the more you realize, oh God, there's this whole giant cave underneath. Next
5: week on Imperfect
6: Paradise.
13: One of the things that the city needs is a long-term system of interim housing, quality interim housing.
5: The rest of How to Allay series on mutual aid.
2: Inside Safe is basically a plan to move people into interim shelter
13: until permanent housing comes about. We have contracted with motels, I wish we had a much better situation.
5: Can motels and other temporary housing solutions help us take off the mutual aid band-aid.
13: One thing that's really
2: dangerous about displacing people is they no longer have access to the very few reliable things that they have.
5: And What kinds of things can we all do to help our unhoused neighbors?
9: My name is Kevin. I'm here with Water Drop Los Angeles here in Skid Row. I used to live on Skid Row here in downtown Los Angeles. I remember the day that my life changed when I went to prison for the last time. Came back to Skid Row wondering, how could I help these people? How can I make somebody's life better? I looked at the water faucets and all that out here on the streets, and I said, How do people gotta use this to survive here? We've got to be a better way. That's when I met Water Drop Los Angeles, and we began to give clean water to the people, which is essential, especially during summertime. When I had a meeting here with Karen Bass, I first in asked her, What can we do different that the other mayor and them didn't do? What can the city do more to help us here? I tell Leon, the councilman in this district, we shouldn't have to have a truck pull up here to get him water. The city should already have that in place. We need you to show us that you care. And when people care, things happen. I know my life can change, anybody's life can change if given opportunity.
5: Hot Olay is hosted by me, Brian De Los Santos, our series on mutual aid is produced by Evan Jacoby. Our other team members include Victoria Alejandro, Megan Patel, Monica Bushman, and Erica Washington. Our intern is Tony Morales. Production support from Jens Campbell. Our executive producer is Megan Larson. We had additional editorial support for this series from Catherine Mailhouse, our director of content development. Sheena Naomi Krocmal, the vice president of podcasts at LA Studios, and Antonia Serejido. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.